Put me in your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 and um, this evening I'm going to be looking at this um, this extensive portion in, in the book of Acts that recounts the, um, the defense that defense that Stephen gave uh, for himself when uh, accused by uh, the high priest and, and false, witness, false witnesses uh, that were brought against him uh, in defense of his, of his gospel ministry. It's the longest part of the account of, of Stephen's life and death. So I was preaching uh, two weeks ago now, was it? Um, preaching two weeks ago on... On, 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 on this uh, on this this section of Acts when Luke tells us introduces us to um, the life of Stephen and, and the mark that he, he he left on the church and clearly Luke sees him as a significant character one um, from which the church should learn and one who is used in the in, in the advancement and the spread of the gospel and um, I said at the time that uh, so I was preaching and I had three points. One was Stephen's Stephen, the man Stephen, and 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 what Luke tells us about Stephen. He was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, and Stephen. Luke is concerned to stress that that this was a he was a man who who loved the Lord, who loved the Scriptures, and who was totally devoted to the work of the gospel. And I said the second point was his message. The third was his martyrdom, and we, we looked both at the we looked at the the man Stephen. We looked at his the, the martyrdom and and how the, the unique way in which Luke tells us about the the death of, of Stephen and Jesus Christ's not just presence with Stephen at his death, but almost even welcoming him home as a, a triumphant um, triumphant member of the body. But then we left this this. This significant part, the most, the most significant um, portion of Luke's retelling of Stephen's life is this message. Um, and a lot, lot of uh, Luke, Luke gives us a very um, exhaustive account of what it was that Stephen said. And so it's right for us to, um, it was right for us to take uh, an extra week to, to look at that and the significance of Stephen's message. It's obvious then that it is, is vital to understanding the person, so it's vital to understanding the person, the ministry, the significance of Stephen at this point is to make sure, ensure that we have, we, we grasp the understanding of his, his message, which is, um, which is uh, recorded for us here in chapter 7. Now, of course, Stephen is um, giving this speech. I don't know, I mean, it has, um, it has, it has uh, uh, features of a sermon at points. Uh, ultimately, though, Stephen is, is more, he's responding in defense to, of himself, accusations that were made against him. So this speech is actually Stephen defending, well, not so much himself, but defending the, the, the purity of the faith and, and the purity of the ministry that was, um, that has been, had been committed to the church and the purity of, of, of the preaching and the teaching of the word there. Um, but it's, it's in response, right, to accusations that are made against him. And in particular, it's important to, it's, it's worthwhile to, to, to highlight that. So in chapter 6, um, it's, 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 we were told that these false accusations, these kind of exaggerations um, of, of, of Stephen's, um, ministry and message were being brought against him to try and essentially condemn him. Um, so verse 11 of chapter 6 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Right? And you, you could say those, those two topics, those two areas cover the, the accusations. Apparently, Stephen said false things about Moses and God. Two significant, um, two significant areas of truth for the people, for the Jews. This would, this would been, this would be the sort of thing that would bring charges of blasphemy and 
um, could then result in his death, which was what you can imagine his enemies desired. But yes, so, so Stephen's accused of blaspheming the Moses and, and God. Uh, and later on, um, the, the, the accusations are made more specific. Verse 12, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. The holy place, which is, you know, the temple, which was symbolic for them of the presence of God, where God, God dwelt. And so essentially speaking against God and the law, which was the law that was mediated through Moses, the law of Moses, it was often referred to. And so speaking against Moses, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So um, Stephen is charged as a blasphemer, as a traitor, as someone who wanted to corrupt uh, the purity of, of Israelite, of, of the Jewish religion, someone who wanted to blaspheme the name of God, someone who um, would, was happy to desecrate, at least in, in words, the, the, the place where God dwelt, the temple of God. He, he was being portrayed as a man who didn't care for the glory of God, who didn't care for the, the law of God, the truth of God. And, and, and apparently, uh, and this is what this new gospel, this new community, this new church, this, this church, this community of folks, um, it, you know, by implication, this is what you could accuse, they would, they would accuse the, the church of, of being a community that would um, um, ignore the law of God, a community that didn't care about the presence of God, didn't care about the temple, and didn't care about the worship of God. So those, is, is those as, as that as the backdrop, that's the background for um, Stephen's response, Stephen's speech here. Stephen is speaking in light of that. And in light of that, he makes a defense. And again, it's a defense of the faith. It's a defense of, of the, the truth that was committed to them. And... Um, We'll look at that then this evening. And I'll do so in three ways. We'll look firstly at just an overview of the message, the structure of Stephen's message, how he seems to structure it. Uh, very, we'll address that very briefly and straightforwardly. And then, but the interpretation. So when you read it, it reads like, you know, Stephen has just put a bunch of scriptures together and has recounted certain historical acts recorded in the scripture. But, but, if you look at a little closer, there's, there's intention there. There's meaning. And this is not a careless uh, juxtaposition of, te of text. This is, um, this is with intention. Um, there, there, Stephen is trying to address, he's addressing himself to the false accusations that have been brought against the faith. That this new community it wants to distort the worship of God this new community doesn't care about the law of God. He addresses himself to those accusations, not merely as being false, but also be, as being brought by those who were false witnesses. So it's not simply a matter of, so, so that it's not just that this is brought by folks who are misunderstood or who genuinely have misunderstood the message of Stephen. Because that's not what Luke tells us. Luke tells us that actually they're just false witnesses. It's not, not simply that they had misunderstood the message, but there was, a, there was an, a, a malicious intent that meant that they were willing to even twist what Stephen had said and that they willingly refused to understand the genuine import of what Stephen was saying. Uh, they were willing, for the sake of their own selfish desires, to resist even the truth, the conviction of the truth, the message of salvation. And Stephen addresses himself to that as well in the way he chooses to, um, to respond to, to the accusation. And then lastly, the, the, Stephen's lasting legacy. I mean, even in the, in the book of Acts itself, we, we, we see that maybe there's, there's indication that there is, that God uses what these folks meant for evil, God uses for great good. You know, um, not after, not long after Stephen is is put to death, um, Luke tells us about a Saul who was very present. It would seem in the in in, in at Stephen's execution, 
um, and who, who should t say what impact seeing this man die so gloriously had on the apostle himself. Not just that, of course, we read that the church is forced to spread out because persecution increases. But actually, in that happening, God is fulfilling some of the very things that Stephen is saying in his speech. Uh, God is preparing the church to fulfill some of the things that you think um, Stephen was trying to get across to these folks um, in his speech. So we'll look at the, the, the legacy. I think we, we read Stephen's speech in the context of the New Testament, and the, the, the legacy goes beyond even what I've just said and, and, and acts right into the rest of the New Testament. So, so maybe it's not so much Stephen's, you know, as, as though it was Stephen that created this legacy, uh, but that the, the, the Holy Spirit who was, used, was moving in the life of Stephen um, ensured that even though that man uh, was, was, was dead, he, he was still speaking and and, and that same spirit who was in Stephen was the same spirit that occupied the rest of the apostles and occupied a man like Paul so that the message of Stephen uh, uh, and, and what he was getting into and, and probably to an extent didn't get to fully develop was, was, was uh, continued to flourish in the life of the church. And uh, yeah, so we see Stephen standing, a man full of the spirit, fulfilling Christ's promise that when his people, when his disciples would be brought um, brought again, brought, brought before you know, magistrates and brought before courts and those who would oppose them, the Spirit would be there to give them the right words to say. And that's that's, that's, that's another reason why we, we pay close attention to this as well. Of course, this is the inspired Word of God. But we, we see, we know that Jesus Christ is fulfilling His promise and that what Stephen says here in chapter 7 is what the Spirit um, desired him to say, you know, he, he speaks um, the words that the Holy Spirit has placed in his mouth. Um, but yeah, firstly, then the, the, the message itself, just an overview of the, the structure of the message. As I said, it's not, in a, in a moment we'll see that there's nothing careless about what um, Stephen has done. I mean, initially, you read that passage, it's quite a long section, and it's clear that what Stephen is doing is he's, uh, he has, so all the way to to, to verse, 50, verse 53, you see that what Stephen is doing is he's, he's, he's reciting um, God's work in, in history. Um, he's reciting um, the, 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 the major points in the development of, of, of the worship of the Jews and how God met with the people of Israel. And he, he just recites that. Now, this, this way of... of given an overview of how God has been at work in history, revealing the truth to the people, giving them the living oracles, is, was, was a common defense anyway, was a common way to defend yourself at points um, he, he, at the time when, when Stephen is speaking. So it wouldn't have been unknown to um, the people. I mean, what Stephen is saying ultimately, and I'll say this um, shortly, is, is I have the backing of Scripture. What I'm saying is, is based off God's Word. So he, I'm not afraid to outline, um, you know, the Scriptures. Stephen is defending himself from the Scriptures. Um, so he gives this, he recites God's work in history, um, beginning from the patriarchs, right? Abraham, he says, um, in verse... To brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Right, he be beginning from Abraham, he begins to recite um, the history of God's work um, in the life of Israel, sending messengers, sending prophets, um, revealing the way of salvation from Abraham, right through to. Um, uh, there's another significant emphasis on, on Joseph from verse 9 and uh, Joseph's rise from um, having be, been betrayed by his, his own brothers and sent into ignominy in, 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 in Egypt and how God elevates him so that he becomes the savior of the people. He points them to their own history. 
Abraham to Joseph through to Moses. Next significant section is from 17 onwards where um, Joseph prepares, begins to introduce the story of the Exodus and the people's enslavement in Egypt and how a king rose who did not know Joseph, all part of God's plan to make sure that his people, all part of God's plan as well to make sure that his people uh, didn't become uh, comfortable, as it were, in Egypt. They stuck in Egypt. It was a land he had promised them. But they, they, it comes to them through the trials of Egypt. Um, God raises Moses, who um, just, uh, Stephen says he was beautiful in God's sight. Um, found favor with God. God looked upon this baby. He was unique. He was chosen. He tells us, tells them about Moses, um, um, reminds them about uh, the, the ways in which Moses faced uh, opposition from his own people as well. Even after he had brought them through the Exodus, Moses was not without conflict from his own people. So he, he, we move from Abraham the patriarchs moved to Moses, and then we move to David, right? Um, he speaks also about David and David's desire to um, uh, set up a, a temple, to, to build a temple for the Lord, and, and how God told uh, David that, no, he, he wouldn't do that. Um, uh, God would build a house for David himself. Uh, and in the end, Solomon does build a temple, uh, even though when Solomon builds a temple, Solomon, Solomon himself acknowledges um, that, uh, that, that the heavens of heavens cannot contain the God of, of heaven. It doesn't dwell in houses made by hand. So you have this overview from Abraham to Moses to David, right? And um, that, that's, that, that's simply it. He, he's he's uh, given this overview. But notice that it's, it's, it's specific as well. The history is specific. This is the last thing I'll say about the overview of the message. The history is specific to the accusations that have been brought to, brought against Stephen about the law and the temple, right? And so um, Abraham to Moses, and he highlights Moses, who plays this significant role in bringing the law, and he highlights David, who plays a significant role, David Solomon, who played the significant role in the temple as well, in, in building this temple that the, the people are so convinced is where God has to be housed now and where God is present. And um, he addresses that, and he's addressing this in such a way um, uh, to let them know, on the face of it, that he is no enemy of God's work in history. Um, Stephen knows that it was God who called Abraham, that it was God who gave uh, the law to the people of Israel that distinguished them from all the other nations of the earth and set them apart to God. Stephen knows that it was God who gave heavenly, a heavenly blueprint for the temple and for the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, that in its, with its paraphernalia, as it were, pointed to the ways of God. So Stephen makes it, from the outset, by, 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 by recounting Israelite history, like Stephen's saying, I'm not an enemy of God's work in history. Right? I, I, I believe what God has done in the past with Israel. I affirm it. It's, it's already, on the face of it, a false accusation then that I don't have, that, I, that, I, that I'm an enemy of what God is doing, has done in the past, or that I don't recognize uh, God's holy activity uh, in the law and in the temple. So that's the that's the, that's the, 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 the main part of Stephen's message. The only other thing to add is his, his application. Remember in, in verse 51, after having just recounted this history, almost rather in the sense of indicatives, just as statements, he then makes a direct application to them. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So um, the, the other thing Stephen does is he makes an application based on um, this recounting of history that he's done, this retelling of God's work in history. He makes an application to the, uh, the, the audience in front of him. He applies it to them, saying that God's dealings in history with the people of Israel actually rebukes them uh, because it reveals that just like their ancient fathers, they also continue to resist the prophets of God. So that's Stephen's message. But there's meaning, as I said, in what he's done, in the accounts he's chosen, in some of the phrases he's used. There is meaning. Stephen's expecting them to understand also the reason why he has chosen the, the, the portions that he's chosen, the stories that he's chosen. And of course, eventually, he applies it to them di directly in those verses I just read. But here's Stephen's meaning as he's... These are some of the things that Stephen means as he's seemingly, seemingly re re uh, retelling just this, just re retelling these, uh, these, these stories. Uh, but there's implication. One, as I've already indicated, contrary to what these folks are saying, Stephen had the highest regard for the law and the temple and what God has done in the history of Israel. So he opens up by saying, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Stephen has no intention of denying um, how glorious the God who revealed himself to the Jews has always been. He's always been a glorious God. He, he has the highest regard. He's not, um, he's not, he's not mocking. He's not mocking God at all. And in so doing, Stephen speaks for the Christian faith. He speaks for this community. Whatever you say about this community, they're not a community of folks who are going to mock God's messengers. They're not mocking God's law. They're not mocking God's work in the Old Covenant. They're not mocking God's presence in the temple. So he says of, um, he says of Moses, for example, um, that Moses was mighty in his words and deed. Verse 22, I read to you earlier also verse 20, 20, that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Also, he speaks of Moses as a, uh, verse 35, uh, um, their ruler and their redeemer. God sent Moses to, God used Moses to, in a sense, redeem the people of Israel from, so redeem there would mean to defend them against, to protect them, to give them victory over their enemies in Egypt. So again, Moses has a high regard for, sorry, Stephen has a high regard for Moses. Um, and and it's, 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 he's speaking on the behalf of the community. Because, I mean, perhaps on the purest reading even, it's possible for the intention of the new community to be misunderstood. When they speak about Moses, when they speak about the law, when they speak about the temple, it can be misunderstood to think as to, to, to sound as though what they're what they're doing is speaking with disregard for these things, and it's not the case. And that's a that's a that's that's a, a warning for us when we, especially when we address our Old Testament and when we speak about the Old Testament, and we want to affirm by all means that Jesus Christ fulfills the law and fulfills the Old Testament. But in no in no sense are we disregarding the Old Testament. In, in no sense are we disregarding or mocking or belittling God's acts in, say, in, in, in Old Testament Israel, God's acts in the Exodus, the worship of the Old Testament people. We have to be very careful. We, we confess that Christ fulfills it. But not, we're not denying that the, the, the God we see in the Old Testament is the God of glory. You know, sometimes today, people want to speak about the Christian faith in that kind of false dichotomy, as if the God of the Old Testament is, 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 a, is some kind of lesser God, as if the Old Testament is less than the Word of God. You see that on the face of it, Stephen's defense denies this, because 
in defense of this new community and their message of salvation, he's quoting extensively from the Old Testament. Stephen believes that the, the law and the prophets are the very words of God. He has a high regard for what God has done, if you want, we might call, in the Old Testament. But as far as addressing some of the false accusations that are then brought against Stephen, because Stephen proclaims a message that says Jesus fulfills the intention of the law, Jesus fulfills the intention of the Old Testament temple, Stephen is also wanting to draw the attention of the folks to, to, to some things. These are some, some, if you want, harsh truths for them to face. One is that contrary to what they might want to suggest, God was with his people even before there was a temple. So you notice that again in how he speaks about Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. But where did God appear to Abraham? It's interesting because Stephen particularly highlights how God appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before, he said, he lived in Haran. Before there was ever a physical temple where God could dwell or be present. God was already appearing to his people. So it must mean that God's presence cannot be tied to a system or God's presence cannot be tied to a building because God was with his people even before those things were present. God was with his people, guiding them, leading them, even before Moses could give the law. It must mean that there was always this sense of promise in the law and the temple. That is, the law and the temple were, not meant, were never meant to be the height, the, the fulfillment of God's promise to be with his people. Because God could be with his people even prior to that. Someone else fulfills God's promise to be with his people. And that's the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in verse 9, he says again, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. God was with him. Whilst they sold him into Egypt. Again, no temple. And, and, and not even Moses' law at the time. But God was with his people. God was with them even before the temple. God was with them even before the law. So anything that... So, so the things that Stephen is saying about the law and the temple, and Stephen saying that the law and the temple are not in and of themselves essential to the presence of, of God, or the temple is not in and of itself essential to the presence of God, is, is not anything that is inconsistent with what God, how God has revealed himself to his people in the old covenant. And also, Stephen makes, is making it clear to the people, the interpretation of his message, that they can have the law and the temple and still not have true worship. I mean, he's going to say this explicitly um, later on um, in, in, in verse 49 when he says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. There's a correction to be given to these people. Just because they went to the temple did not mean that they truly knew God. Just because they had this building dedicated in their mind to the worship of God did not mean that they always worship God. And in particular, Stephen brings this out because what he says to the people of Israel, he says, you have a history, what he says to his accusers, don't you see that the history of Israel, right, is full of 
repeated attacks on the messengers of God, right? Constantly, you rejected. You have long been rejecting the messengers of God. So having the law and having the temple did not necessitate that there was genuine worship. And, so, and, and, and Stephen says to them then, that's why his application is, in verse 51, you're, you're a stubborn people, you're uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Right? The, they, they did not have true worship. They had a, they had, for example, the law that commanded them to circumcise their, their, their flesh and their foreskin, but their hearts were not circumcised. He, that is, their hearts were not prepared for the worship of God. Their hearts were not purified for the worship of God. They did things on the outward, but not internally. And so, uh, uh, the, the, the other thing that Stephen tells them in, his, in this message is that just because they had the law in the temple didn't mean that they had true worship because God wanted their heart. And the people of Israel, he says, he says, you were a stubborn people. You were a stubborn people. You were uncircumcised in heart. You did not have true worship. So, although Stephen seems to just recount Old Testament history, it's with intention. He's, he's revealing something to them. He's saying things in his message. He's saying to them, you're accusing me of having no regard for God's law and God's presence, but you are the ones that have no regard for God's law and God's presence. And you can see it in the history of how very often you have rejected the messengers of God. And even now, as Stephen said, you're rejecting the messenger of God. Not so much Stephen himself, but yes, they're rejecting Stephen, but you're rejecting the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the Messiah. And uh, that's the import of Stephen's message. Well, what's the, his, his lasting legacy then? What's his lasting legacy? What's the, the legacy that we, we as believers have seen committed to us uh, in the rest of the scriptures, but also through Stephen's standing here, how he, he stands here? One is the universal nature of the gospel. The implication of Stephen saying that God is not bound to a temple, right? And God is not bound to a certain place was that God could be sought and found outside the borders of the temple. That, that to, to find God, you didn't have to be in a certain place. There's no holy places like that. Um, and, and, and this is, Stephen can say this even though he acknowledges that Moses once appeared before a burning bush and God said, take off your sandals because the way you're standing is holy ground. But what made it holy ground was God being present. It, it wasn't the ground in and of itself. It wasn't the build, it's not the place, it's the presence of God. And so, we can also, that frees us to preach the gospel to all men and women, regardless of where they are. You can preach the gospel in a nice church, churchy building like ours, right? You can preach the gospel in, in a living room. You can preach the gospel in a playground. You can preach the gospel here in the UK, in Europe. You can preach the gospel um, somewhere in, a, in, in, in North Africa where there's a predominantly uh, Islamic, uh, where, 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 where Islam is predominant and the gospel can be true there. And men and women can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in their room that is right above a mosque where false religion is practiced. Because it's not about um, it's not about the location. It's not about the place. Uh, the gospel is universal, and it's 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 for all people. It's not just for Jews. It's for Gentiles. That's the significant legacy that we see Stephen preparing the church to confess. You know, as 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 things proceed from here, um, we're gonna see a, we're gonna see a Saul who 
becomes convinced that he's commissioned to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations of the world where, who, who did not receive the Holy Scriptures, the pagans, the Gentiles. And um, we are the beneficiaries of Stephen's stand, Stephen's defense. We are those of us who have received the gospel, if you want, as Gentile nations, those of us who have received the gospel, um, and we were not raised um, with, uh, we were not raised um, in, in, in a nation that, that had a, a holy temple dedicated to the living God. Those of us who trace our ancestry to the practice, perhaps, of all types of false religions, and yet we confess the name of Jesus today uh, because early on in the life of the church, they were, Stephen begins as, as well, this in a significant way, the ability that the church has to articulate what Jesus Christ is doing now in his ascension. He is the Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures. He is the Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures. But now that he's fulfilled the promises that the scriptures make he pours out his spirit upon all flesh that's the uh, last in legacy is this there's the universal nature of the gospel again of course as i indicated stephen's uh, um, last in legacy is just the nature of, of 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 true worship or of regeneration and and jesus christ spoke something similar to what um Stephen says here, when he speaks to the woman at the well, right? And he says um, that the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The time is coming when worship is not going to be about a place, Jesus Christ says, here or there. It's those who have the Holy Spirit. And ever since, and continuing from the stand that Stephen takes here in standing for pure, true worship, in proclaiming what that genuine worship is in the heart, and being transformed by our faith, by, by, by believing in God's promises, believing in God sending the Son of Jesus Christ. The church has been bold to make a stand and say that to be a, a, a child of God is, is not a matter of a purely external religion. That just because you go to a place called church every Sunday does not mean you are a Christian or one of God's children. True worship is in the heart. That there is not ultimately a form of clothing that makes you a saint. You know, I, I, I grew up going to churches where you, we used to wear white garments. Everyone actually wore a white garment to church. You'd, you'd go to church and you wear white garments. Um, and it was meant to be, it was meant to be a, a sign of our set-apartness, our sacredness. Uh, but but they, 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 were ignore, they, they were ignoring the, 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 the sort of things that Stephen died to say. But by doing that, there's, you, you can't, true worship is not about the externals. There's, you can't just put on clothes now and be holy and set apart to God. It's in the heart. It's those who receive the message of the righteous one. And so, who believe it, and he sends the Holy Spirit. Now, true worship is about being pure. True worship is about being holy. But that happens only through the grace of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So, so Stephen's legacy is to push the church in the direction of what true worship is. It's not about places. Um, it's not about uh, holy um, utensils. It's not about uh, holy, uh, holy oil or holy water. It's about the heart being transformed by the grace of Jesus. And also, ultimately, that Jesus Christ fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament. Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. 
Stephen is making it clear. I'm not opposed to God's work through his messages in the Old Testament. I just know that Jesus Christ fulfills those things. Stephen, he, he sets the pace for the church to be able to declare that Christ fulfills the scriptures. And of course, we continue to be careful in grappling with what that means for us. But you know how, for example, later on, an apostle Paul, for example, will come to understand it, that then circumcision, circumcision does not mean anything. You know those are words of the Paul, the words of the apostle Paul, circumcision means nothing. And we take that for granted. But imagine saying that as someone who believed, who believes the Old Testament. As someone who believes that Abraham was called by God and knows that one of the marks of Abraham's fidelity, his faithfulness to God, was when this man took up the covenant sign of circumcision, circumcised his whole household out of a desire to be faithful to God, out of a desire to confess that he was in covenant with God. That was a moment to, to, to look and to worship at how God made was in covenant with Abraham. And here comes the Apostle Paul and says, circumcision means nothing. Why can he speak that way? Not because he's disregarding God's work in the life of Abraham, but because he sees how what Abraham was doing was just a shadow for the work, a shadow pointing to how Jesus Christ fulfills the promises of the law. And that extends right beyond um, the acts of circumcision all the way to even the most sacred acts of sacrifice. That's why today in the church, we don't, we don't sacrifice animals, right? We don't do any of that stuff because Jesus Christ fulfills the law. And we must remember that Christ has fulfilled the law. We're not in disobedience to the scriptures whatsoever. We're living in the glory of the one who fulfills it. And again, you'd be, you'd be shocked how sometimes Christians can Harken back for um, that which is now is no longer, as it were, almost applying to them. I remember, um, I, I remember s- s- constantly seeing um, at, at one point in my life just services where, where Christian ministers would recreate the whole tabernacle structure, and the 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 the, the, the pastor would come in as a great high priest. And they would have arcs, and they would be sprinkling incense. And this is not just, it wasn't just a play, it was a drama. It was, it was some suggestion that you could get spiritual endowment and empowerment from this. Apparently, let's worship. It was hearkening back for that which was inferior, for the shadows. We don't need the shadows. Christ has fulfilled the law. We, we live in his glory. Um, and, and so we can, we can live in, in that confidence. Christ is full of the promises. That extends to the dietary laws as well, right? There's, Christian, there's people today who claim to be Christians and say, well, but you guys eat pork, so your body's undefiled, or you eat this and that, and they say, Christ has fulfilled the law. And you can, you know, you can, you can in the name of Jesus, you can eat your, you can eat your pork, whatever, you, you, can, you, you can do that. There's no, we don't have those laws. Christ has fulfilled us, and we live in, in this liberty. And, the, and, and Stephen stands for that. He, he's, he's, he stand here against um, the false witness of, 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 of his accusers here, the false witness of his enemies here, is one that leaves a lasting impression on the church that we must reckon with how Jesus has fulfilled the law. That's why we sung, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies." And that's a wonderful hymn, reconstructing how Jesus Christ has accomplished all that which the Old Testament was promising and pointing to. The law was promise. Jesus is the fulfillment. Um, Let me close by just saying these two things. One, Stephen is also, though, a reminder for us, right, that to quote the, the words of the Apostle Peter, very often we, we have to be, Christians have to be ready to make, to, to give a reason, you know, for the hope that's with them, to, to give an apology. I don't mean apology as in saying sorry. You know, apology as it applies to this kind of, um, uh, this uh, um, 
specialist work of, of, of defending the faith, apologetics we call it sometimes. We must be ready, often we need to be ready to defend the faith. So we, we must not embrace at any time a, a, a Christianity that is intellectually hollow. Very often Christians, because we really want to be lazy sometimes, we, 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 we resist any attempt to have to study and understand and memorize and think through our faith. But there's no such thing. That can't happen. Now, it's true. Some Christians will be gifted at point... At, at, some Christians will be gifted, more gifted than others in certain aspects. It's true. Some truths are far more worth being able to defend than others. There's some things that we should be more concerned to be able to speak boldly about and carefully about. But no Christian is exempt from having to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in them. Now, of course, as I say, apologetics is quite now like a, a specialist almost subject. And, you know, we usually associate that with thinking about how to defend Christianity against the cults, for example, and geo-witnesses and Mormonism. And that has its place. Um, those things have their place. But ultimately, the truth is that we all have to be ready to grapple with the reasons we believe what we believe. And where does that come from? It comes from here. It comes from the scriptures. Understanding how the scriptures tell the story. We're starting a series on Tuesday, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? Because we have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And the most basic element of our hope is that the fact that Jesus Christ died. And we need to be able to go back to the scriptures and say Jesus died for sin. And say Jesus died as a propitiation for sin. And Jesus died to reconcile us to God. And Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God and so on and so on. And to, we must... And to be acquainted with this and to understand it. And we, 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 Stephen reminds us, as we see this man, full of the, the Holy Spirit, enabling him to speak up for his faith. And you, you, we must be careful, right, that we are not incapable of doing this because of our, of our own laziness, because of our own carelessness, because of our lethargy, because of our coldness. You know, oh, I'm just not that way. I'm just not just, just that. Um, I'm just not wired that way. You say, you say. I'm just not. You know, I'm not. I'm just not a big reader. You say, I'm just, that's just not me. And you have to make sure that you are not ignoring a a a, a, a vital part of your calling as a Christian, a, 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 a calling to stand with other Christians in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the other thing to say, and I'll say this in closing, is to, is, is, is to remember that, um, and I know that we don't all face the same situation that Stephen faced. Most of us are not at this moment anyway thrust into, um, uh, into Asian Palestine and, and, uh, and involved in arguments regarding how to interpret the law and the temple and having to stand for Christ in that light. We're not, we're not facing that per se. We're not facing that at the moment. But what we are doing is reading the life of a man who was called by God to die so that the church might be encouraged to continue to proclaim the wonder of God's grace. Stephen refused to give in for a moment to those who, because they were insecure and jealous and, uh, and, and felt like this community was trying to usurp their own authority or understanding of the scriptures, he didn't give in to them for a moment because he knew that only the grace of Jesus Christ can save. And he was willing to die to say that. That, you know, uh, 
a purely external religion, and, and even the, I, I, I dare say, sacred, um, the, the sacred aspects of Old Testament religion, the sacred, sacred um, external elements of, 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 of Old Testament religion and Old Testament practice could not save in and of themselves. Only the grace of God saves. Now that's always been true. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Um, but we're called to, if you might say, proclaim that in even greater light. And Stephen was willing to die for that. Right? Apostle Paul says, you might say something similar in the book of Galatians, when he's, a, he's, he's, you know, and he eventually has to rebuke Peter for this, I wouldn't give in, not for one moment, to those who try to add to the way to, 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 to salvation by, by grace alone, salvation by faith alone. Not for a moment. I wouldn't allow anyone to convince me there was something to be added to grace. And men had to die for that. Men and women had to die for that. We must not take this for granted. We've not had to shed blood to declare that only the grace of God alone saves and to declare the nature of true worship. We've not had to shed blood. So there's no reason that we should renounce it now because we're afraid that people would look down on us or renounce it now because we want to show some kind of affinity for our ethnic background or we want to show some kind of affinity for some healthy way of living. We must always say that when it comes to Salvation, it comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And we should be wary, we should reject any sort of indication that we're adding to the grace of God. Anything that looks like we're adding to the requirements for salvation. Anything that looks like we're saying faith and Anything that we're, we're look like, looks like we're saying Christ and. No, Jesus Christ alone mediates the presence of God. Not a certain place or building. Not a certain way of dress. Not a certain element of worship. Not like, not like a holy water or anointing oil. It's only Christ alone who mediates to us the presence of God. And we must reject. We must be ready to reject or attempts, or, 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 or attempts by Satan to corrupt the way of true worship. Uh, we must, we look at the example of Stephen and we, we stand in defense of the true gospel proclaiming that salvation is by grace alone. Amen.